0: You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. Your host this week is Tristra Year Yeager, Chief Strategy Officer at Rock Paper Scissors, the PR firm that specializes in music innovation and music technology.
1: Hey everyone, I'm talking today to Kim Bingham, who is the founder and CEO of Monstra Monstradarte. Did did I get
2: that right? Are you CEO, Kim? I am. I'm founder and CEO of my proud baby Monstradarte.
1: Monstradarte. Darte, there we go. And uh it's it's an art monster, correct?
2: Yeah, Monstradarte Darte is the art monster. Absolutely, Every,
1: <laughs> All of us need more art monsters in our lives. So before we talk more about um, Mosto d'Arte, I would love to talk to you about your background because it's absolutely fascinating. So you started off as an artist, and more specifically, and I hope I'm getting this right, you started off in ska. Tell me more.
2: Yeah, so that was actually my, um, that was the beginnings of the, my musical journey in college and uh so we mo- me mom and morgan taller is at the roots of my mu- musical journey so that was the name of the ska band that um i helped to form in montreal um out of school and uh we quickly over the time that the band was uh, in existence which was pretty much like from the late 80s until the mid nineties. I know I'm, I'm, I'm aging myself here, but I am a very proud, vital, vibrant Gen Xer um, wear that <laughs> Same. <label> proudly. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, we became a, we became basically a hot ticket as a live band sort of in the red, hot chili peppers, fishbone sort of way. And um, along our journey became a legendary live band as voted top band in Montreal for years and years and years in a row. And basically we have a kind of like a cult status in, uh, in our hometown. So that was the start. Um, I left the band to pursue my uh, independent career under the alias Mud Girl. And that was sort of my grunge, sort of the grunge era, um, Kim Bingham phase. Uh, and uh, that was sort of when I got really introduced to the larger music industry labels were interested in signing me out of the u.s and out of canada and um that led to me touring in the u.s um as part of a all-female tour called little Fair. i mean i'm really going back now but um, this is great yeah <laughs> it was good times and i mean i feel like it's yesterday and yeah and so i you know I've I've had the experience of um of like being the artist uh, courted by the major labels, meeting all the top people at the time. Whether they were like, you know, my lawyer was like Radiohead and Nirvana's lawyer, and I met with the people that work with Katy Perry and Elmo Morissette and all of that. And I, I stayed happily independent, actually, uh, in the end. Um, which is- can,
1: was, can oh, I ask you, yeah. how was that decision making process for you? Were you just such a did you just did you have this sort of intuitive feeling like this is di- the direction I need to go I need to steer my own ship or were there some events or conversations that helped you understand I, I think I need to have control of this like wh- what was that decision making process like.
2: Well I mean it was really it was a super exciting time obviously it's always great you know when everybody wants you like <laughs> that's what I used I to say um but uh you know then i'd look at i'd talk to my fr- friends musicians who were signed and they just seemed really unhappy oh man
1: so nothing worse than so, getting what you want sometimes <laughs> yeah
2: like they felt like they were misunderstood and they're sort of like you know and then the rights that you give up um i'm i am a person who have always read the fine print on everything so um you know understanding what you're giving up uh when you started off independent, uh, I started off in a DIY, basically punk ska band. Like it was, I was like, you know, punk rock DIY. That was me and Mom Morgenthaler, and my ska roots were all that. And so, um, when you know that you're going to be giving up a lot of your rights signing to a label, and yet you know the other path as a DIY artist, um, and at that time, being a DIY indie artist was still like a really viable financial career you know when you knew that the attention was on you it's like well why do I need to sign all my rights away when I can fill a club and like tour and pack clubs myself and sell you know CDs at the time so uh, it wasn't actually a hard decision and I mean I've stayed happily independent ever since I've collaborated with labels having my albums you know certain records that I've done licensed to major labels but uh, and that's great um, but, um, I, you know, I, I'm I'm glad that I stayed independent.
1: That's really fantastic. Thanks for sharing that history with us. It's also, I mean, if I may be so bold, I think as a woman, it's a delicate decision to make sometimes because there are many people who have ideas of how women should be, and you have your own idea. Um, and just some of the management you mentioned makes me think, you know, that would be an interesting study in contrast if you're coming from a very outspoken world Um, like I know some other uh, really powerful female ska voices that you know were very uncompromising in their statement of who they were and what they were going to do and I could just see compared to some of the other models of feminine being (laughs) in the music industry that could really stand out as like wow this is different than how I see myself.
2: Hmm. Yeah well I would say that I don't know that I necessarily had I didn't have any kind of negative experience as far as my percept, my, you know, the way that uh, I was perceived in the music industry. Um, I, I, you know, the fact that I was with a management company at the time is called Network Management, mm-hmm. um, who uh, I know that they've managed Coldplay, Avril Lavigne, and at the time they were managing Sarah McLaughlin. And I was invited to be a part of a big tour that she was putting together of all women artists. So it was like, uh, Jewel, Cheryl Crow, Tracy mm-hmm. Chapman, um, and so that that I, I I was already I I felt sort of um, appreciated as a female artist, and uh, so I I didn't I didn't feel like there was any that I was being misperceived in any way. That's actually something I've been very fortunate about. I think that that might have something to do with the fact that I I came out of sort of the grunge rock mm-hmm. scene after the ska scene of me mom more intolerant and you know being part of the punk rock DIY scene um women are pretty you know you you like you're a rock chick like you're pretty you know you've you know you got yeah so it's it's not um there's no pop wave thing going on and that kind of stuff too but I have to say later on in my career when I did work with Nelly Furtado uh, as her guitar player and backup singer, um, I did see how hard, and if we're talking about pop waves, which I don't, I wouldn't put Nellie in that category. Yeah. I think that she's a fabulous artist. I'd just say she's, she's an international pop star because she works her butt off. I'm so sure, yeah. Um, yeah. so
1: yeah, Cool. Well, thank you. It's, it's actually exciting to hear a story that differs from what many assume is, is the, is the norm. And it's a great example of how, how women like you are cutting their own path. That's really exciting.
3: Hi, my name is uh, Alex. I'm the COO of M.BOD.ME. Uh, we are a, a French company. Uh, we are specialized in human computer interface. Uh, but uh, our background has been in music for 10 years. And uh, we always wanted to develop this the most expressive instrument. Uh, and so we two years ago, we launched Array Touch which is this uh, expressive MIDI interface. Um, and we're all about, you know, customization. We wanted the instrument to be super versatile. Uh, so,
0: And here in the booth we have a number, I see a number of these, of these um, pads, and each of them has a different uh, arrangement of colored tiles and bars and blocks. Is that the kind of customization you're talking yeah, about? Yeah,
3: exactly. So for NAM, we made a special version where we assembled nine controllers together. But really, this, this tool, this uh, controller, this instrument can be uh, super, uh, really versatile in a way that you can have up to 16 different layouts. A layout being just a scene, a visual that can hold like a, a grid, a keyboard, or faders elements. Uh, there's a software that comes with uh, the hardware where that allows to create your own interface. So it's really about building and customizing your own interface the way you need it, whether you're in the studio and you're more like a composer or sound designer, and you need to work on the expressivity uh, and push the, the expressivity of your creation forward. But it's also super bright, too. you can customize the color, the animation, and on stage, it really looks you know, so great. So it can really
0: become part of the performance. Yeah. Wow. What were you hoping to gain from coming to NAM this year?
3: Well, obviously, connection. Uh, we started the, and launched the product on Kickstarter two years ago. It's been really uh, successful since, but uh, obviously, like many consumer electronic company, we had issues with the supplies. Oh, of course. Even more as a startup. <laughs> But uh, now we're ready. We finally are stock. and so we, we've uh, sold about a thousand units of this product. But now we're ready to expand, and uh, you know, we uh, in the U- the US being our big market, um, we only have a, a great store in the US, which is Perfect Circuits. Okay. When we're looking to expand, find more store, more distributor them. worldwide, and yeah, expand and connect with obviously musicians.
0: What's the most exciting thing that's happened at NAM to date?
3: A uh, lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, actually, I re- yesterday we had the visit of a customer, uh, which I didn't know was the film composer for Avatar. What? So I was quite, uh, I sent that the, 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 to all the team in France. They were super excited, uh, knowing that our instrument was used to, you know, make the biggest film score for last year, maybe. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, that's cool. Exciting to. Know that the tool you spent like five years developing is being used by amazing artists like that. That is a great story. Really cool, yeah. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And now back to the show.
1: Well, so you you had this incredible career as an artist. How did you start thinking that you might be drawn to a different kind of creativity or other activities into entrepreneurship, running your own company? Like, how did how did that begin?
2: I think that's uh, creating Darte and wanting to form this startup is really a natural evolution of being an independent artist and having my own, quote unquote, indie label that uh, was putting out my records, and, you know, m- managing the budgets, putting together the tours, doing the production, all that. And so... Um, when I decided I'd do, I put the, put the startup together. That was really, I, I came up, well, I came up with the idea a few years ago about the business model for the, for the company. And, uh, it just so happened in the last couple of years, it was just the right time for me to start building this out. I think with the, um, with the appearance of the blockchain in everyone's lives or for a lot of people anyway. And, uh, and then after that music NFTs, I think there's a huge opportunity to read and basically redesign the music industry and the way that independent artists work, um, that, that really needs that we all need to grab onto and, and take advantage of. So, um, that that's yeah. So that's really it. It was just sort of the time was right for 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 this, and it's a natural outgrowth of what I've been doing for a long time now.
1: Cool. So let's talk for a minute about the business model. Where did you start in terms of thinking about it, and how did it all pan out? So maybe tell me about your initial idea and how you're thinking about structuring uh, the business and why, and then how maybe that evolved over time. Because as as we build a company, things always change and get sorted out in slightly different ways, but often for the better. Anyway, tell me a bit about that that journey.
2: Yeah, well, I so I'll try to describe it without talking about it too much in detail. Yeah, I <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's a certain amount of, um, I guess, company company secrets, I guess. I don't know if that's you, you don't have it, to give away the
1: secret the- sauce. That's totally fine. Okay. <laughs>
2: Um, but yeah, it really came out of the frustration of, you know, I ran the books for me, Mom, I did the books and so I was the bookkeeper and I could see, you know, we earned a lot of money as an independent band and then I earned a good living also as an independent artist, myself, solo artist. And, uh, I could see it, it was when basically, um, my major pain point is the internet in general. Like, <laughs> uh, here, here, I'm, I don't want to sound like a grumpy old nope. gal, but, uh, cause I'm not, but I think <laughs> I speak for all independent artists. So we're all grumpy about this. We're all grumpy about the internet. Um, when the internet came in late nineties, basically at the turn of the century, uh, which was only 23 years ago. Um, like the bottom you know the value dropped out of music for a while and uh the major labels have managed to somehow right the ship and streaming's been a huge part of that but independent artists have been basically left to flail and try to figure out this this paradigm that was hoisted upon them um you know, while their livelihoods, to a large degree, as far as it was like, I mean, I re, uh, like selling records, or I remember looking at my box of CDs and going, like, what am I going to do with this now that Napster's out and everyone can just like basically rip yeah. the music for free? And so, uh, this is the main pain point that I'm trying to resolve is like the economic problem of the internet for independent musicians. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it, it frustrates me to see my colleagues, uh, fellow independent musicians struggling financially in a paradigm where they do not, uh, overall, where they do not get paid what they should get paid for the work that they do. And uh, this is where I am hoping that I'm, I'm, well, I know that the business model that I have is a solid one. Um, I I am finishing a master's degree in wealth management uh, where the thesis is on how NFTs are changing the business model. For musicians. So there's a lot of study going on as far as financial models uh, from an academic perspective on how musicians run their careers. And then in the history of the music industry, where the values really are. So the idea with Master overall is it's it, it, without, I'll just say it's supposed to be an, I'll give it, I'll say it this way it's supposed to be an all in one platform that gives, that where the artists get the majority of the revenue. That the company makes for the work that they put out, for the work that the artists put out. So, um, whether it's streaming, the marketplace, or crowdfunding, like the artists all just the artists can just come to this one place and do it, do everything there. So that's really the concept of Masterdarte. And uh, for myself as an independent artist, it's the platform I would have wanted at the beginning of my career. I mean, I've done well in my uh, career, uh, but uh, I would really like everyone that's an independent artist and that's got a thriving community following them to also do well, and the internet just doesn't support that right now.
1: That's really important. That I think one of the most interesting things you said was all-in-one, because I feel like artists, even those that are very open to Web3 or NFTs, are being sent to all sorts of different places, and it's so hard not only for the artist to keep track of what's going on, but to bring the fans to all the places they need to go. Um, you know, exactly. even with things like LinkFire and, you know, uh, having a, a website, et cetera, it's still it just feels like there's so much effort and there's so much friction to get people to go to the right places at the right time to do what you need them to do.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, this this is a sort of like a it reduces the friction in the creative economy for an independent musician. This, this model of Darte does, and I'm working on building it out in a way that um, that's it's going to be, it's, it's slow because the regulations around specifically NFTs mm-hmm. and how that could affect the marketplace of the platform is a real, uh, you know, that's an ongoing <laughs> conversation internationally And uh, so it just makes sense to build the platform out brick by brick, really. So I've got one first product I'll be putting out soon, um, which is the NFT of the uh, mascot of the platform. And uh, that's Mo, the little monster. Now, Monster D'Arte means art monster, as you said at the beginnings. Uh, And uh, so Mo is the little blue monster. That's the mascot for the platform. And so The first uh, NFT, the first product I want to put out for Darte is actually a PFP that will basically be like when you buy the PFP of of Mo, you're basically buying a subscription for, you know, you're you're buying a subscription, you're signing up as a subscriber as well to the platform once it's out um, later on in the year.
0: The 2023 Music Tectonics Conference is coming October 24th. 25th and 26th in Santa Monica, California. This is our fifth annual conference and we are making it our best yet. Our keynoter is Meng Ru Kwok, CEO of BandLab with a unique global perspective on how the convergence of music creator tools with the music industry is already shaping the future. Check out the growing speaker roster at our website, musictectonics.com, with music tech investors from firms like Sony Ventures, Plus 8 Equity Partners, and Waverly Capital, and big thinkers from Spotify, Tidal, Splice, Lander, Billboard, and more. Hey, you're listening to this podcast. Don't you think you should be there too? Get your early bird ticket at musictectonics.com and join the music tech innovators. See you in Santa Monica. And now back to the show. I think it's
1: so fascinating that you are all at simultaneously weaving all these academic studies of <laughs> regarding wealth and um, economics, personal finance, into, um, I mean, alongside launching a, a music project, which is. Very uh, impressive, to put it lightly. How is music different from other art forms or entertainment forms or I hate the word content, but content creation modalities, not to be too frou-frou about it, (laughs) but is there something special about music that you feel is it has been kind of overlooked or misunderstood in terms of translating what we all know is its deep worth to so many people into economic value. And you can speak abstractly. Again, I'm not asking for secret sauce here, but I'm just curious what are your what are the, what are the more philosophical underpinnings or thoughts you might have about that?
2: There's some really interesting conversations to be had around the value of music and then if we talk about the different modalities or the different um, Delivery systems or ways of sharing music. So, and digital seems to be actually in some ways it's it's the worst. <laughs> what, what makes <laughs> you? In it's, it's the, the worst. worst. Yeah. <laughs> be- well, because it because it when music becomes it seems to be when music becomes ubiquitous, it loses its value, and that doesn't make much sense. So, the internet has made music ubiquitous, <laughs> and then it's also kind of stripped its value away then you can talk about community the star power of the artist or the enigma of the artist and all of that and the rest of that sort of we we'll use the term again secret sauce but um i'll give an example of what i'm talking about okay so i like to uh in my research uh overall whether it's for probing out the pain points uh, for Maestro Darte and and trying to resolve this problem of the internet for musicians while I'm building this platform, or whether it's just in the framework of the academic research that I'm doing for my master's thesis, I'm going in and I'm talking to record shop owners. Okay, and so I'll be passing by a record shop. I'll, I'll come. will go in and I'll talk. I'll talk to uh, the the person, the, the people working there, and ask them about vinyl, vinyl market. Local artists that might be, you know, who are the artists that are doing vinyl? Uh, what's their experience in vinyl? And so I had a really interesting conversation just a couple of weeks ago with a record shop owner who said, you know, he was, uh, trying, he, was, he was in the market to buy this vinyl that was ultra rare of this old soul record that was like a Japanese pressing. You can listen to the record on Spotify all day long. No problem. But the vinyl was worth two to $3,000. So, you know, like, because it's rare and there's only one. So it's the physical object that's worth a lot of money. But then, of course, you can listen to it on Spotify for free. Where there's, there's some sort of interesting conversation to be had there about the value of the physical object, the physical representation of the music uh, or delivery system of the music and then the digital one. And then there's also the conversation around NFTs and the value of in the fine art market of visual art NFTs, and then the value of music NFTs, which is completely different. So, you know, I see artists that are putting out music NFTs for five bucks, three bucks. Well, we're back to the same thing of music basically not having much of value that way whereas you know Beeple or C or whatever all these other NFTs can be in the hundreds of thousands or tens of millions of dollars and there's got to be some correlations that have to be made between the fine art market and NFTs visual NFTs and music NFTs as well there's like there's a lot of conversations and deep thought that needs to go into how to basically probing the value out of, uh, out of these delivery systems to raise the value of the music, to raise economic value of the music. I think we're getting there, and I think it's only going to be by trial and error, really. Um, there's the other point also of when you're um, marketing in general uh, to the public, are you marketing to everyone at a lower price or are you marketing to a small group at a higher price and I think that that's also another conversation that you know I think a lot that we're already having um, in general in in media industries but um, anyway those are the three kind of points that I find really interesting and finding the correlations there to try to figure out what model, uh, well, I, th- I think I have some strategies in mind already that I don't want to talk about mm-hmm. yet because yeah. I'd like to try them out on the marketplace, yeah. um, with, um, the, you know, the music NFTs and products that, and different kinds of collaborations and physical objects of uh, limited edition physical things, you know, uh, whether it's vinyl or limited edition collections of, uh, I'm talking about like sneaker collaborations with, with hip hop artists and things like that, like different ways of marketing products um, that seem maybe more exclusive. Um, yeah, but, uh, but th- th- that, so that's really where my mind's at is these puzzle pieces that and kind of taking more of a macro, more bird's eye view of everything and not so much the shiny object syndrome that I think is really what's going on. Yeah. lately. Well,
1: 2022 has kind of disavowed us, I think, of some of the shiny object uh, aura around NFTs. And I think that's a really good thing because I think there are really cool potential uh, use cases for NFTs that we'll only explore if we have to ask hard questions and do, you know, experiments where there are failures and things. Um, not that I wish failure on any music artist ever, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Um, I'm curious, too, you mentioned things like vinyl collectors. And I think at first when people were talking about music NFTs, they were really thinking about it from a collector perspective. And then we shifted into all this talk about the nebulous world of utility, um, which is always which remains really poorly defined because I, we just don't have you know, ethnographic data, for lack of a better way to put it, about what use people find in NFTs. And in some ways, you hinted at both, like there's some weird intersection of ownership, which I don't think is sufficient to get music fans excited. And the community aspect, which can be partly prestige, right? Prestige is like a, a, an offshoot of community. Or it can be we're all in this together and we want to make something together kind of with the you know, creative vision of an artist at the helm. Um, I don't know. I'm just curious what you think about that, like how ownership and community can intersect in ways that might prove more beneficial to better music.
2: I mean, I'll just I'll just say my answer is Kiss Army like exactly <laughs> like or the great right you know old school yeah <laughs> like when you were excited to be a fan in a fan club mm-hmm. and you had your patch that they sent you you know you'd send in you know whatever your application, you know your membership form and you know this is the same thing now you're buying the nft that's got like you know that's your membership form it's like mm-hmm. buying the nft and then you've got the perks that come with that and the community that you're part of and I think that it's like there's so many old school things uh, that and I think this is where like my Gen X punk punk rock DIY, you know, uh, roots um, come into play like that. There's so much of that experience that is so easily translatable into the digital experience with NFTs and, and and that kind of excitement and fun of being a fan and 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 being able to have a voice and being part of the community with the fans and discussion with the artists and the collaborations that can happen like that. I mean, I, I think it's 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 easier it's when you think about when i think about it that way it becomes really really clear to me and becomes much simpler to execute
1: cool so can you talk a little bit about how you landed on nfts and blockchain for this particular project there are ways to imagine doing it without it and and but i'm sure you picked the technology for a reason
2: I did. So the reason, the main reason is because it's proven to be, at least currently, it's, uh, it's beso- I mean, as far as products that artists can sell, it's got the largest profit margin. Okay. But the potential profit margin of any product that an artist can sell, you know, otherwise artists are mainly making their money, either playing live or licensing, right? Like, like that's where a lot of a lot of income is coming in, but uh, for those that are able to 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 you know to, to go out and, and and play live or to um, get their music licensed, but other than that, it's really music NFT. So that's why it's um, pretty much the first uh, topic or first article uh, that would be that's part of the master Darte model um, that I would like to address. It's not the be. It's only one. Uh, article of many that will be available on the platform because it's a physical and digital marketplace as part of the uh, part part of the business model. So, um, you know, whether it's vinyl or merch or whatever, like that'll be on the platform as well. But this pain point or big question mark around NFT, NFTs uh, and Web3 for independent artists is the one that I want to resolve. And um, the second part, second part of my answer is that, um, you know, we, you and I had the pleasure of meeting at South by Southwest this year, and uh, at South by Southwest, I met a lot of independent artists, and everyone I spoke to when I would mention NFTs, their eyes glossed over, like they just. <laughs> oh, uh, man. like, <laughs> yeah, and I also um I also led a group of uh, independent artists that would meet on Zoom every couple of weeks as part of Patreon. So I'm on Patreon as well and so it was a bunch of Patreon singer-songwriters on Patreon that I'd meet with. And we were a group of about 50. Uh when I'd mention NFTs on the calls, they'd except for one, they'd all go, "Nope." So, you know, uh why <laughs> Why don't we figure this uh, this thing out about NFTs for the majority of independent artists? And I know that probably a lot of listeners to this podcast are, uh, you know, into NFTs, and there are artists that are already delving into NFTs. But the majority of artists are not, and because they're overwhelmed already with what they have to do, and they don't necessarily see the clear value. Uh, also, you know, the onboarding, the you just getting the wallet and all of that together is complicated. So, uh, I just want to delve into that, delve into the, the, the topic of NFTs and address that first, um, because it's the most interesting and the most potentially financially rewarding.
1: It's also cool to think about, um, getting like a wider range of artists putting out NFTs. I mean, I know that artists of all kinds are getting stuff out there, but it seems like the overwhelming majority makes a very specific kind of music and, you know, good to get a wider range of rep- representation of sounds
2: yeah also it's true i you know i have a thought about that so yeah i know that it's mostly um electronic music uh like edm and mm-hmm. hip-hop rap that have been leading the way right um as far as genres in the nft music nft space and my thought is actually both of those types of music are made more or less on computer i mean well edm is made on computers Made digitally, mm-hmm. and hip hop as well, to a large degree, is made on computers. Other forms of music aren't. So, <laughs> the further you get away, like when you get into more analog instruments, yeah. I think that there's that also that sort of that it's kind of psychological separation. Is okay. Well, I'm an analog musician, and here's another digital product I need to get into. Whereas if you're already making your music on your computer, like you're, you know, it's just it's your it's your la- it's your music language. It's your musical language. So I think that there's maybe more of an affinity to get into music NFTs because of the genres. That's just a thought that I have. I don't know that I haven't researched that, but yeah. that's just my, my observation. That's a
1: really good theory, though. I, there, I, I think it. we often tend to talk about the technical barriers, but we don't talk about the cultural barriers that prevent people from participating or engaging with different technologies. So I think that's a really good point. I mean, if you're like, it's me and my clarinet, dude, I don't need your weird <laughs> file format or whatever, your blockchain crypto stuff, right? It, it, you could really feel, it could be very alienating to hear exactly. that. Exactly. Even if it's a, if you if it were phrased a different way, you'd be like, oh, cool. I can like Package up my music in a way and any you know and put anything I want in there, and it's almost like a little like a little gift box that I can give to a fan for a certain in exchange for a certain amount of money or something i don't know it's it it is a really interesting question so what what do you feel like is is lacking for these artists who are struggling to wrap their brains around n f t s or web three or some of these new um opportunities? I mean, what do you think? Are there things on the technological side you feel like could be solved and they don't have to directly relate to your company, um, whether it's like MetaMask should be easier to use or, you know, um, I, the people should feel a little bit more comfortable like buying their first little bit of crypto so that they can pay for gas fees or whatever it is, which was for me one of the biggest barriers. Like, I got to buy 25 bucks worth of ETH just to like click on this, you know, thingy dingy that my friend wants me to get. Um I mean, what are what are the technological barriers? What are the are there some additional cultural barriers that you've seen as you've talked to artists that you really feel like as an industry we can address and ease people through, you know, for their own benefit?
2: Well, I'd say it's all of the above. Uh, the, the first thing is, uh, as soon as it becomes as soon as it becomes easy, like, you know, grandma can buy an NFT. <laughs> That's <laughs>
1: I mean that's, that's not of me when, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's me how right that's now. how easy it is. <laughs> I said you're talking about B basically right now. You
2: <laughs> know? <laughs> well, that I mean, when it gets to that point, that's when, you know, that's yeah, that's when absolutely. the artists will all be on this like white on rice. But uh-huh. um until then, yeah, that's that it's it's just it's the same conversations that I see happening at the um web three uh or nft conferences that i've been to which is uh basically education and adoption that it's it it needs to become easier the process needs to become easier to get your wallet together to buy an nft to mint them like all of the all of the above so um i know that this is these are things that many companies and startups are working on day in day out uh you know to to improve the experience uh, but uh, yeah, and and I think the other issue is also just the regulations around these things. Um, I think that uh, you know the the image of uh, crypto, blockchain, and so by association, NFTs have taken a hit with the scandals that have happened in the last year or so, uh, whether it's FTX and all that. So. Um, I think that they're a little wary, like you know, uh, from what I can see and the conversations I've had. It's well, you know, let the Web three crowd figure all this out, and the governments figure out how they're going to regulate this stuff and tax me on it or whatever. Like, uh, you know, that then they'll then they'll get uh, th- then they'll get further into it. I think we're still. I mean, I hope that we're not more than a year out. I imagine that at this point it seems like we'll be a couple of years out until we we can uh, fully you know get full integration of these of more artists uh, participating in, in web 3
1: and thinking about it from the artist' perspective once once we've broken through the technological barrier what kind of creativity do you hope to see I feel there's been a little bit of a copy paste uh, <laughs> tendency right we're thinking about we're still thinking about things in terms of singles and drops and and then, and yet an NFT could be anything, right? It could be, you could have audio visuals, all sorts of cool stuff combined. And you could have as long or as short of an audio file as you wished, all sorts of cool uh, possibilities that really blow open, um, you know, what we could, what music could be. Are you, you know, have you heard any any thoughts about that? Do you have any of your own thoughts or dreams about where we could go with some of this? What's the sort of blue sky vision for how music and NFTs might play well together?
2: Well, for music and NFTs specifically, I mean, I would say I got to go larger than that and just say Web3, VR, Metaverse, all that. And I mean, that's for me, the vision of Monster Darte's. Is It just is that that's my, my blue sky vision is Mastro Darte and all of that encapsulates all those things. Um, what I mean by that is um, I'll start with this data point that I'd uh, heard actually at a conference at, at South by which is that um, music is still considered a real driver of innovation and So, I think that uh, there's a huge opportunity for digital innovation with music as the driver. In other words, an artist communicates with the community and says, I want to do, you know, I'm thinking about doing this metaverse experience, and, you know, you can buy, uh, uh, I'm pre selling NFTs for it or whatever. Like these kinds of more really wide open um, conversations between the artist and their community. And basically digital, um, digital entertainment platforms and companies that can develop incredibly cool metaverses or virtual reality experiences. Or, I mean, and I don't even know, you know, other things that we don't even know that, that, could, that could exist in the future. And I think that that's where it is. I think it's music as a driver of digital innovation and digital entertainment. That's what I see. And it's uh, and I think I think it's much more of an open conversation and um, an open investment Uh, also on the financial side from third parties, investors, fans that can all participate to create these works uh, and experiences around uh, an artist piece of music or album or whatever. And uh, I I think that it's that that's what I see is a much more collaborative, innovative sort of paradigm and where the artist is really um, because of the blockchain and the transparency that can come along with redesigning a whole new business model for independent artists, not just because of the blockchain, but just basically like really just being more transparent in general, blockchain or no blockchain, whether it's Web 2 or Web 3. What this is where the artist could be at the center of being the also the economic driver and be earning more money for the work that they do.
1: Wow, that's really great! Thanks for sharing all of this with us, Kim. And we will share where you can find everyone's fa- hopefully everyone's future favorite art monster monster darte in the show notes. Um, thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Tristra. It's been a pleasure talking with you. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know we do free monthly online events that you, our lovely podcast listeners, can join? Find out more at musictectonics.com. And while you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. Everything we do explores the seismic shifts that shake up music and technology, the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains connect with music tectonics on twitter instagram and linkedin that's my favorite platform connect with me dimitri Viza, if you can spell it we'll be back again next week if not sooner you're listening to music tectonics